it is good for us to sing the glory due to your name, give you glorious praise, to remember your deeds and what you have done. So Lord, now as we look at your word, we ask that it would be our portion, that it would give us peace, and that we would honor you with faith, repentance, and trust. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're looking at Psalm 46, familiar text. Hear God's word. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he's brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the, ends, to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. This is God's word. I jumped ahead of the slide. Can you put the pictures up? I had two pictures that I was going to intro, and I wanted you to, this, this really shocked me this week. So this is the new GM car, and I want you to write down two things as a little test with these two pictures. So let's show, show them the other picture too. Uh, so here's the new car that General Motors is making. Uh, actually, one's General Motors, another one's some other new car, but what's missing? What's missing? All right, so steering wheel is missing. This is the new car. It's the autonomous car, uh, driverless car. Now, I want you to write down on a piece of paper, and I don't want you to sh anybody to see your notes. I want you to write down a few adjectives. When you see that, I want you to write down what is that, how does that make you feel? Okay, I just want you to... Because I saw this this week, and it instantly brought out some things, okay? Now, I'm just curious. For how many, right, did you write down a few things? All right. How many of you wrote positive things? Really? Like, this is really cool. I can't wait to get one. How many think, I want to I buy one of these. I can't wait to buy one. I want to talk to you guys after the service, because... I wonder how many of us on the, had what I felt like, which instantly, instantly anxiety. How many just, that is like anxiety city, okay? I mean, the concept of a driverless car, I'm okay with the concept. I'm okay with the theory. I'm okay as long as there's a steering wheel that I can override at any point. But no steering wheel, I, can't, I don't even know if I could get in one of those without feeling claustrophobic. And I've, it feels... Not only am I anxious, but I think, how arrogant. Anybody have arrogant anywhere written down? Because I'm like, you're telling me 
that you think Google or GM, that you're smarter than me, that you can avoid an accident better than me. And so it probably can a lot of times, but it, so it's my pride, but it's also your pride. And it's like, this is a man-made thing and ultimately man-made things fail at some point. Now, the reason I brought this up is I think this is how a lot of people feel about life is that I am completely out of control. There's not even a steering wheel. And I'm supposed to get in that thing and navigate life. And I don't even know where I'm going and who is at the wheel. And when that kind of thought hits you, it's a feeling of anxiety. And the psalmist here wants to tell us who's in control. Who is driving history in the past in the present and in the future, it's all laid out in Psalm 46. Past, present, and future. Was God in charge in the past? Yes. Is God in charge in the future? And is he in charge now? He's a very present help in trouble. And so you have this picture that's a great help to us because we live in a day of lots of anxiety. And we have all kinds of insurances just we have health insurance, life insurance, car insurance, home insurance, alarms for our house, alarms for our car, cameras installed, big dogs to protect and guns just in case. And we have lots of things to fear. Ever since Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when God came looking for them, what did they do? They went and hid because they were afraid. And we have lots of things that we're afraid of. And that was actually a good fear in one sense, to hide from God in their sinfulness. But this psalm is a balm because it tells us where to find refuge. The refuge isn't ultimately in your insurance and in your alarms or in your dog or in your gun. The refuge in this psalm, the refuge is God's presence that's with us. That refrain is several times. We see God's protection in this psalm, God's preeminence. He will be exalted in the nations. And by faith, when we take this up, it's our peace and our portion. And so one of the commands in this text is to be still and know that I'm God. We live in an age of hustle and bustle, motion and commotion, running to and fro. How are you doing? Usually when you ask people the question, the answer is busy. How are you doing? I don't even really have time to even tell you the answer. I'm just busy, and I gotta go. And there's business and busyness, and in the midst of that, there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear. Charlie Brown, it's a great quote, I have a new philosophy, I only dread one day at a time. <laughs> and we have this thing in our day and age where we have fear, we even fear what might possibly happen. It's not even a reality, but it's a possibility. And because it's a possibility, we're afraid of things that are potential potentialities. The Bible says in Proverbs 28.1 that the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. But the wicked flee when no one pursues. The idea is that the wicked are fleeing and there isn't anybody even, there's nothing they should even be afraid of, and yet they're running. Stephen King said, I like to scare people, and people like to be scared. Well, are you scared this morning? What we need are our BGVs. Do you know what BGVs are? 
Here's what BGVs are. Big God verses. We need our BGVs. And Psalm 46 has some BGVs for us. The children's sermon, that was BGV. Those are big God verses. Because for me this week, actually just meditating on these two commands, there's two imperatives in this text. Actually just meditating on those texts was really helpful for me. And the one is, come and behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. So here's this command to come and behold his works, but the desolations, that God is the one who just brings things down. He's saying, meditate on that. <laughs> really? And there's lots of promises. And, and what we have in this text, okay, is unbelievable chaos. The psalmist is describing for us in these first couple verses earthquakes, sinkholes, mountains falling into the heart of the sea. We've got landslides, volcanoes, waters roaring and foaming. We've got hurricanes, tidal waves, tsunamis, floods. It's what we call natural disasters. But wait, there's more. Not only is there natural disasters, but we have nations raging and kingdoms tottering, invasions, assassinations, wars and rumors of war, terrorism, terrorist plots, terrorist cells, rigged elections, dictators, coups, and secret plots to overthrow governments. It's all here in Psalm 47. And the psalmist is saying, in the midst of all that, what? God is with us. And there's more. Nations rage, kingdoms totter, so much so that if you have one of these maps that's like from 15, 20 years ago, and I've got one in my office, you, maps and globes, they become outdated. Just like your GPS has to be updated. Well, they have to do that globally because countries change every few years. There's either more countries or less countries. Some countries disappear. Some countries get bigger. Some countries get smaller. Sometimes it's civil, and a lot of times it's not civil. A lot of times it's a bloodbath. And the nation of Israel split. And there was a northern kingdom, and there was a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was conquered. And the southern kingdom was conquered, and they were both led into exiles and deported into foreign lands, and later some were allowed to return after the exile. Nations rage, kingdoms totter. And it, right in the midst of this, to verse 7 and verse 11, we have this refrain, the Lord of hosts is with us. Do you see that in verse 7 and verse 11? It's repeated. Lord Sabaoth, his name. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle, is Martin Luther's translation. And that's from Psalm 46. Lord Sabaoth is the Hebrew for the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts. Philip, who was best friends with Luther, Philip Melanchthon, and he used to struggle a lot with anxiety and worry. And Luther would say to him, Philip, let's sing the 46th. And the 46th Psalm was Martin Luther's favorite psalm. And he penned the lyrics to Almighty Fortress is our, is our God, on, apparently on his way to the Diet of Worms. And the Diet of Worms is not where he's going to eat worms as his diet, okay? That, this was a council that was calling for his head. And just as John Huss had been burned at the stake when he testified and, and testified that he was standing for scripture and wasn't submitting to the authority of the church and to the Pope, they killed him. 
Well, this was certainly going to happen to Luther. And Luther's, let's sing the 46th. Philip, let's sing the 46th. Lord Sabaoth, his name. You see, the psalmist asked a question in Psalm 24. It says, who is this king of glory? Who is this king of glory? What's the answer? It's like meant to be like a, a back and forth. Who is this king of glory? The answer is the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. He's the king of glory. The Lord of hosts means the Lord of the, he's the God of the armies. That's all the people you can't see, all the angels you can't see. God's in charge of them. And they're a little bit more important than us. So he's called the Lord of armies. If he's the Lord of them, how much more is he the Lord of us? And the Lord of hosts is with us. And so what I meant to ask the children today, and I missed up with the children's sermon, was I wanted to ask them a question. Once you see how big Jesus is and he can calm the storm, I was going to ask them if they know what a secretary is. The big word, but just to see if they could get the grasp of a secretary. And a secretary is an assistant who comes to do things that the boss needs done. And I think that's how most people view Jesus, is he'll be a nice secretary. The Lord is with us, so come on in and be my secretary. Come be my secretary. And does this look like Jesus wants to be our secretary? When, and when I was a, a kid, that's what I wanted. I wanted a secretary. I wanted God to bail me out if I got in trouble, but I wanted to be in charge of my life. I wanted to drive. I wanted to be in control and Jesus, you can sit in the back seat. So if I get in a problem, you can help me out. You can be my secretary. After all, the Lord of hosts is with us. I want him to be with us, kind of like a teddy bear. But Jesus is so much bigger than that. He's not a secretary. He comes to take over. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the king of glory. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's with us to the end of the age. And just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego discovered when they were thrown alive into the fire, who was with them? That was Jesus in that fire. And they came out unscathed. God is an ever-present help in trouble. And so we need to be reminded of Jesus' promises this morning. He said to the disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He didn't give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of sonship, putting the spirit in our hearts that we would cry out, Abba, Father. So not only is he with us, but he protects us. He's our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Look at verse five, this wonderful promise. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The idea here is that it's, it's short-lived. It's a dark night, but dawn is coming. And our soul waits. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Our soul waits. We have to learn to be still. And what this psalm wants to get at for us is to remind us that God's the one in charge. He's the one who can say, be still. Just as Jesus said, be still in the storm. God is in control. And so in the midst of this chaos, this psalm is speaking truth to us. And the truth is in verse 4, that in the midst of these 
prideful, arrogant waters. The word here in verse um, three that says the mountains tremble at its swelling. The imagery here is that the mountains are actually afraid of the waters because the waters are so prideful. The word swelling is the word for pride. And so the waters are so raging and so swelling and so powerful that the mountains are saying, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. You know, it's, it's imagery to remind you of, we've been covered before, back in Noah's day, and we're afraid. We're afraid of these waters, of these floods. And it's the imagery of chaos, right? And so in the midst of this, verse four, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. So in the midst of all this chaos, the psalmist writes this verse. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. This is rich theology. There are three different looks of this. There's a past, there's a future, there's a present. The past. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. It should, re it should conjure up Eden in your mind. We are told that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made a spring of every tree that's pleasant to the, to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge and good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So Psalm 46 should take you back to the church of what the church looked like in the garden before there was any fall. The church was pretty small back then. It consisted of two people, Adam and Eve. But they were blessed and they had a real river that flowed out of this garden, or flowed out to water the garden. Well, this, there's also a future look to this theology here. In Revelation 22, last chapter of the Bible, it says, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will anything be accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They'll see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. There'll be no lamp, light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. In the midst of all this chaos, God is establishing his kingdom. And someday he's going to usher down that new heavens and new earth. But in the present, where do we see this now? Well, in John chapter 7, Jesus stood up on the last day of the feast, the great day, and he stood up and cried out, If anybody thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the imagery here in the present is that we have God's presence with us. Jesus is the temple. 
So when we say the Lord of hosts is with us, I mean, the one that Jesus comes along and says, there's one greater than the temple is here. And the temple was pretty important to them. And he says, well, there's one more here that's more important than the temple. And he said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll rebuild it. And the Bible says that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He became the temple. Jesus is the temple. But when Jesus rose and ascended into heaven and poured out his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was sent down from heaven to live in us, and now we are the temple. Individually, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, but we're also, as a body, we are being built up into a temple that's not made with hands, but built up by God, by his Spirit. So what in the world does verse 4 and 5 mean? Let's put these together. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. You see, what what the psalmist is saying is the Lord is with his church. He was with her in the garden. He's with us now. He's in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. And so he'll be with us in the future when he returns. But the imagery of the city of God both speaks of Jerusalem and of the temple, and it speaks of heaven, but it's also now we are the Israel of God. We are the church, the city of God. We are members of Zion. And so what is the church to do? The church is to live out the commands of Psalm 46. And the first command is going to help us so that we can say, therefore, we will not fear. And the command is to come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth, that he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. You see what the psalmist is getting at here? He's saying what the problem with our fears is that our fears are too small. That's the problem with our fears, is they're too small. The problem with our fears is they're too small. They need to be swallowed up by a much bigger fear. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he's brought desolations on the earth. Go and contemplate how many times God cleans the slate, where he wipes out enemies. He wipes them out often in the midst of when the church or the people of God are facing certain destruction. Desolations is the idea of of deserted, a place of no hope or alone or, or empty. So let's take biblical desolation for 200. Let's think of Jeopardy for a minute. I'll just give you five, all right? Here's biblical, I'll take biblical desolation for 200. Okay, the church was down to eight people and they were all saved by floating on the boat. Which desolation am I? Noah and the flood. Desolations for 400. God saved Lot and his daughters, but his wife and his sons-in-law were all wiped out as God rained down sulfur on them, and Lot's wife looked back, and God took her. Which desolation am I? Sodom and Gomorrah. Desolations for 600. God moved the Israelites into just the right spot to, to tempt Pharaoh to come and get them as they seemed as they were totally hemmed in. Their only escape was water. Ha! Their only weapon was water. Ha! Let's go get them. Let's wipe them out. Let's bring all the chariots, send all the armies. Let's, desol- let's make them desolate. Let's drive them into the sea. How's that going to work? Which desolation am I? The Red Sea. God's in the midst of her. 
God will help her when morning dawns. The waters might be roaring and swelling, and the mountains might even be afraid. God's with her. Desolations for 600. Which desolation, desolation am I? I was, this is going to be a little trickier. I was jealous of Moses and said to him, you've gone too far for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the, of the Lord to which Moses said, hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up, with all that belongs to them, and they go alive into Sheol, then you shall know that they have despised the Lord. And as soon as he finished speaking these words, the ground under them split apart, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them. Which desolation am I? Korah's rebellion. Now where's this psalm come from? Who wrote the psalm? The sons of Korah. And they're telling you, come and behold the desolations of the Lord. You want to have your fears taken away, look at my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, however they were tied to him. But their lives were spared, and they knew that their, whoever it was in their family line, whether it was their father or great-grandfather, had been destroyed, and the earth had opened its mouth and swallowed them. Do you think they had a better understanding of come behold the desolations of the Lord? They had a bigger fear that swallowed all their fears. Desolations for a thousand. I made the very gallows to hang Mordecai because he refused to bow down to me. I hated that Jew so much that I got the king to make a decree to kill all the Jews. I become so popular and so powerful that even Queen Esther has invited me over to her house for a banquet. Who would the king delight to honor more than me? Actually, who would the king delight to humble more than me? Which desolation am I? Haman on the gallows that he made brought him down. How about King Jehoram? King Jehoram, there's, there's some scary text in the Bible. I mean, you ever wonder like, why is this, why is this for us? Every scripture is God-breathed, it's inspired, and it's useful and profitable for us. So here's, here's 2 Chronicles 21, 13. But have, it's talking about King Jehoram who walked in the ways of the kings of Israel have enticed Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom as the house of Ar Ar Ahab led Israel into whoredom. And also you have killed the brothers of your fa father's house who are better than yourself. Behold, the Lord will bring a great plague on your people, your children, your wives, and all your possessions. And you yourself will have a severe sickness with a disease of your bowels until your bowels come out because of the disease day by day. After all this, the Lord struck him in the bowels with an incurable disease. In the course of time, at the end of two years, his bowels came out because of his disease, and he died in great agony. This ends the reading of God's word. I mean, <laughs> when you read something like that, and you're, and, you're, and you're playing games with God, and your fears are small, what should a passage like that do to you? You tremble at the warnings, like God is in charge of your bowels and your whole everything, and he can just take you out. 
And he can afflict you there, and you could die in agony in two years of painful, horrendous, I don't even want to go there. But it's God's word, and it's meant to be profitable for us to bear fruit from that. I mean, we haven't even scratched the desolations of Herod being taken out like that. Or Nebuchadnezzar being made crazy for a time and brought down to eat grass. Or Belshazzar, we have this expression, the handwriting on the wall. It was literally a hand that wrote on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekelu, Parson. And that very night, bam, your kingdom was destroyed and taken from you. Or God took out Nadab and Abihu for offering strange fire to the Lord. And bam, he just struck them down. God, Uzzah reached out to touch the ark, just thought he would help the ark along. And God didn't want dirty hands, but dirty dirt would be much better than dirty hands touching the ark. And he struck him, he's dead. What in the world is going to happen when the Lord returns? Come behold the desolations of the Lord. When the Lord returns, it says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are a flame of fire and his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and, and, and the name by which he is called the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a shark sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he'll rule them with a rod of iron he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the almighty on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written here's his tattoo king of kings and lord of lords I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against the army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs which had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the throne and the birds were gorged with their flesh come behold the works of the lord come behold the desolations of the lord i need that like okay my problems are pretty small <laughs> that just kind of shrinks my problems I've got Jesus on my side he's not my secretary he's King Jesus and he's king over everything and all the enemies come cringing before him and God laughs and says I've installed my king on my holy hill and so he says kiss the son lest he be angry you see all the psalms are ultimately Jesus psalms and if you can kind of get that grid in your mind, Psalm 1 is about who delights in the Lord and who will meditate on the, on the Lord about the righteous person. That's Jesus. Psalm 1 is Jesus. Who's the only person who's done that, who's meditated on the law day and night? Jesus did it his whole life. And Psalm 2, who's Psalm 2 about? Where it says the nations rage and they're, and they're against the Lord and against his Messiah. And he laughs from the heavens and says, I have installed my king on my holy hill. Who's Psalm 2 about? Jesus and so rejoice with trembling and kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled Psalm 2 is about Jesus well Psalm 3 to 7 is all about David and his struggles and he's got people over him and under him that are struggles 
He's got a Saul that was over him and he's struggling. He's like, he's like Aragorn. He's, he's the king in waiting. Well, we're, we, we have a king in waiting now. His name is Jesus and the nations aren't acknowledging him. But Aragorn was gonna rule and Aragorn's a picture of Christ. Christ does rule. He's waiting for his kingdom. And just as David struggled, Jesus praised these psalms as well. And so Psalm 3 to 7, they're all about, they're Jesus' struggles as well. Just as, as, as uh, David had an Absalom that rose up and tried to usurp and take his kingdom. Well, isn't that what Jesus experiences? But Psalm 8 is about Jesus too. About the Son of Man who was made a little lower than the angels. Who's going to restore our humanity and our dominion over this earth is Jesus and so Psalm 46, the Lord of hosts is with us. Who, what, is King G, what is Psalm 46 about? It's the Christmas story. Emmanuel, he's with us, and he's with us to the end of the age. Psalm 46 is Jesus. It's Jesus. And so for us this morning, have you submitted to Jesus? Don't make him your secretary. He's Lord he takes the steering wheel right off the car. I was talking to somebody recently and, and, and I said, How? this was another pastor. What are you learning? This was actually Matt Roberts in Germantown. He wouldn't mind me saying this. Actually, Mike, because he's such a humble guy. But I said, what is the Lord teaching you? And he said, the Lord is just teaching me blank check. Blank check. I said, what do you mean? Just to give God a blank check. My life is yours. Fill in it what you want. Just fill in it what you want. Just get in that, that car that has no steering wheel and say, Lord, you're, you're in charge. You rule everything. You drive it where you see fit. I'm your passenger, not the driver, and I'm going to take my hands off this steering wheel, and I'm going to resign as CEO of the universe because I haven't been very good at it, and I've been really anxious, not sleeping real well, trying to be that CEO of the universe. It's not working real well. I mean, I can't even get my kids to come to supper on time. You know, I could call three I mean, life is hard, isn't it? You know, like, like how much can we really be sovereign over? And so when we resign, we just say, Lord, you are God. Otherwise, the alternatives are pretty bad. Let me just give you two alternatives and we'll close. The alternatives, if you don't believe this, like what do you believe this morning? Sam Albury sums up atheism with this cheeky comment. It's meant to be funny, but think about this. This is really what atheism really believes. The belief that there was nothing and nothing happened to nothing and nothing magically exploded for no reason and created everything. And then a bunch of everything miraculously arranged itself for no reason into self-replicating bits which turned into dinosaurs. Yeah, that's what I believe. Are you crazy? Nothing doesn't come from nothing. Nothing plus nothing equals what? What are you doing here? You're not nothing. God put you here. You say, well, I just want comfort. I just want comfort. Well, C.S. Lewis's classic quote of mere Christianity. In religion as in war and everything else, comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will get either you will get either comfort or truth. You're only going to get soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. So don't put comfort in first. 
Put truth in first. That's the big rock. Come behold the desolations of the Lord. And lastly, be still and know that I am God. And know that be still and know that I am God is the most taken out of verse in the whole Bible up next to Philippians 4.13 of I can do all things through Christ and I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. You're going to 70 years into, into, into exile, but we quote Jeremiah 29.11 like it's nothing but good news. Well, it wasn't going to be good news until 70 years from now when you, he brings you back. And Philippians 4.13 is Christ, you know, gives me strength. I can do all things through Christ. And the idea is that I know what it is to have nothing. And I know what it is to be content, whether I have a lot or little, his strength, rather than just the victories. Well, how about this one? Be still and know that I am God. If you looked at the quote from Derek Kidner at the beginning of your bulletin, it says it's, first of all, not a comfort. For believers, it's a rebuke to the nations. The nations are striving, trying to take over. They want to be in charge. They want to rage. They want to, they want to get rid of the Messiah, and they want to cast his bonds and his cords from them, and they want to take charge. And Psalm 46.10 is, first of all, a rebuke to the nations. He's saying, shut up, is literally what he's saying. Shut up. I'm in charge. You're trying to take over and do all that. I'm in charge. I got this. And if you get that rock in first... It's even more of a comfort for Christians when it's not taken out of context where we pull it out, put it in the Christian bookstore and bumper stickers and around the house and be still and know. I mean, it's nice, but until you get the rebuke, then it really becomes a comfort. Do you see why these are BGVs? These are big God verses. Therefore, we will not fear because we have a greater fear that stabilizes us, that God is good to his children, good to his church, he's in charge, he knows where he's going, and we can actually lay our hands off the steering wheel and let him just give him the blank check. You're in charge, Lord. Would you do that this morning? Let's pray. Lord, you have installed your king on your holy hill, and so we submit to him. We lay down our plans, our little agendas. Lord, we lay it at your feet and we acknowledge you're the king and you rule well. Forgive us for our rebellion, trying to be king and trying to establish our own laws, make our laws, break your laws. Forgive us. And oh, we want peace and comfort before we want truth. Forgive us. And Lord, we pray that you'd make us hungry for you, hungrier than anything this world can give us, that you would win our hearts and that we would see that our God reigns. There's none like you. You're the only God who's bled. And we are saved by that blood. You're with us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.